So the last three Wednesdays, we considered the Lord Jesus in his three offices of prophet, priest, and king. And I hope it magnified his greatness and his ministry to us in your eyes, Christ as prophet, priest, and king, the last three Wednesdays. And looking ahead to the next three Wednesdays, we have two missions presentations and then a week off on Thanksgiving week. And so the question for me was what to do with this one week in between, what to consider together tonight. And what I decided to do was uh, simply to look at three areas of the Christian life this evening, not necessarily directly related to one another, but three areas that came to my mind. Not an exhaustive list of Christian practices either, but I decided to have a look tonight at three areas of the Christian life and to give you, with each one of them, what is, I hope, some practical wisdom on how to carry them out effectively. I'm calling it practical wisdom because the hints that I'm going to give you are intended to be practical. That is to say that they will have to do with the nuts and bolts of putting certain biblical mandates into practice. And I'm calling it practical wisdom because I hope that there will prove to be at least some measure of wisdom in what I share. So... Three areas of the Christian life tonight, three areas of Christian living, and with each one I'll show you first some relevant biblical principles, and then with each practice I'll also endeavor to give you some of my own practical suggestions for how you might put the principles into action, and I hope how you might do so effectively. And note that while the biblical principles are infallible and authoritative and thus mandatory for us to comply with, my own practical suggestions are just that. They are suggestions not from the Bible, but from my own experience or thinking about how to live the Bible out. And thus, my own suggestions aren't infallible. They're not authoritative. They're not mandatory. And yet, I do hope they'll be helpful in fleshing out the mandatory biblical principles. So just sort of three mini-sermons perhaps tonight, three separate topics, and without further ado, uh, let me have you think with me, first of all, about visitation. Visitation. And here I'm thinking not about door-to-door visitation or in-home visitation with those who've recently been guests at our church, important as those kinds of visitation can be, but I'm thinking at this point about visiting those who are in the hospital, or the nursing home, or the rehab facility, or hospice care, or the prison, or the jail. And it's really in thinking about um, the practicalities of this particular area of Christian ministry that caused me to begin thinking along the lines of sharing some practical things with you tonight. And the biblical principle regarding this sort of visitation is simply this. In his famous discourse on the separation of the sheep and the goats, In Matthew 25, two of the characteristics of the sheep, two of the characteristics of two Christians that Jesus brings forward are that they visit the sick and that they visit the prisoners. Read with me in Matthew 25. We'll begin at verse 34 and read down through verse 40. Matthew 25, 34. Through 40. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, 
and you invited me in, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when do we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So, visitation of the sick, visiting the prisoners, is an expected part of the Christian life. Christ's compassion toward us, his gospel mercy on us, compels the true Christian to exercise compassion toward others. And this is one of the ways. Visitation is one of the outcroppings of such mercy. And so the most important thing tonight, practical suggestions or no, is simply that we do this. Simply that we go to the hospitals, to the nursing homes, to the rehab facilities, to the hospice homes, to the prisons and jails. Even if we don't have all sorts of good ideas for what we're going to do and say when we get there, the most important thing is that we go. But it does help to have some practical ideas of how to make that kind of visit and how to make the most of it. So I want to give you some practical suggestions so that you can put this into play in your own life. Three of them. You think about visiting the sick, visiting the prisoners. Three practical suggestions. First, always read Scripture. Always read Scripture. Many people may visit your friend or your loved one in the hospital, but they need a Christian visit. And a Christian visit comes with the comfort of God, and the comfort of God comes from his word. Always bring the word of God to bear, even if it's briefly on the person's heart and life who's hurting and to whom you're trying to minister. It doesn't mean you need to preach a sermon to them. It doesn't even mean you need to read a long portion of scripture. In fact, shorter may be better, as we'll discuss in a few moments, but always leave them with something from the scriptures. Always read scripture. And as my seminary professor, Gray Allison, used to tell us regarding personal evangelism, so it's applicable, I think, in visiting the sick or the incarcerated, whether the visit is evangelistic or not, it's probably best, Dr. Allison told us, if you don't just quote scripture, but if you actually take out a Bible or a Bible phone app in our days and let them physically see that you're reading from scripture, Because this, he said, will reinforce that what you're saying is from the Bible, that what you're saying are the very words of God. And thus, Dr. Allison also taught us concerning evangelism again, in order to be able to share the gospel at any moment with people with whom we may come in contact, and to be able to share the gospel at any moment by reading directly from the scriptures, he taught us to always carry a copy of the scriptures, a pocket testament or a whole Bible if possible, with us. And he would tell us, if you see me out, you can ask me if I have my testament. And if I don't have it, I'll buy you a steak dinner. But if you don't have yours and I ask you, you have to buy me a steak dinner. Always have the scriptures, he said, so you can share the gospel. And this applies when you're visiting the sick or the imprisoned as well. Except when security, like if you're going in a jail, except if security won't allow it, always have a copy of Scripture with you. This is easier 
in this day of smartphones. But even if you don't use a smartphone, get a small New Testament or a pocket Bible so that you can always read Scripture. And what should you read? Well, a few things to consider. We're still under this sort of subheading. The first thing you should do when you visit, always read Scripture. A few things to consider about what you should read. One is consider the person's need. What sort of biblical text would be most helpful given their situation? Are they lost or are they a believer? Are they physically sick or are they emotionally or mentally unwell? Are they nervous about some impending surgery? Are they under God's discipline? Are they in good spirits even though their body is broken? It's fairly obvious, of course, that we need to consider the need of a person we visit in order to know what to share from the Word of God, but it does take a little bit of forethought. It's not best to wait until you're about to walk into room 306 before you decide what part of the Bible might be helpful to the person in the bed there. So spend a little time considering the person you're visiting and their need. And of course, be willing to adjust if in conversation you begin to detect a different need or a different passage that would be helpful. And then don't just consider their need, consider their capacity. Someone who's in great pain, and many of the people you will visit will be, or someone who's very groggy, and some of the people whom you will visit will be, probably can't handle an entire chapter of Scripture in one sitting. Maybe not even an entire paragraph sometimes. And so I think it's far better to give them a single brief verse or a couple of verses that really get to the heart of the matter and that will stick with them when you're gone and that they'll be able to understand and focus on for that brief period of time than to weary them with more they can handle, more than they can handle. And then think not only in terms of just their listening capacity in the moment, but think in terms of their spiritual capacity. So a fellow church member, someone who's sitting in the pews with you here week by week, if she's not extremely pained or groggy, a fellow church member, a fellow believer, might be able to digest an entire psalm or an entire paragraph from Paul's epistles with you. But an unbeliever who knows very little of the Bible might get lost in that sort of a reading, especially if they're in a hospital bed or if they're in jail with other things pressing on their mind. And so it's better, again, to read something brief and to the point and then maybe briefly explain it and apply it than to walk someone through an entire portion of Scripture that you may lose them with. Now, if the person's alert and they're interested, then by all means, keep going and do more. But gauge how much capacity they really have and be like Jesus, the master teacher, who was speaking the word to them, Mark 4.33, so far as they were able to hear it. So then, when you visit, always read scripture, taking into consideration the need of the moment and the capacity of your hearer. And still in this matter of scripture reading, let me make one other suggestion that's been helpful to me when I find myself in a situation where I'm visiting the same person multiple times over. When someone's in a nursing home, or if they're in hospice care, or they're in a rehab facility, or they have a long stay in the hospital, oftentimes you may find yourself visiting them again and again and again. And if that is so, You can, of course, just think about their need and capacity for each separate visit and perhaps just read from all over the place uh, in the scriptures, and that can be a good thing. But one thing you might consider doing, especially if you're visiting somebody who's lost or you're visiting someone you think might be lost or someone who's dying, one thing you might do when visiting someone like that again and again 
is to take Jesus' seven I am statements from the Gospel of John and read to them one per visit. They're wonderfully evangelistic, and they're brief, and they are, most of them, colorful word pictures, right? I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the true vine. Just brief, powerful statements of the gospel causing people or at least urging people to look to Christ. And they all begin with I am, and they all come from the Gospel of John, so that gives you some continuity so that both you and the person you're visiting have a little easier time remembering and going over the ground that you've covered. So we're talking about visiting, and my first practical suggestion is always read Scripture. And then the second suggestion, more briefly, is always pray. Always pray. If you can help it, never leave the hospital, never leave the nursing home, never leave the rehab facility or the jail or the prison or the deathbed without calling out to God on that person's behalf. Take them by the hand if you're able and pray with them. It doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be expert. It doesn't have to be sophisticated. But pray for them. Call out to God on their behalf. Pray with them about what you just read to them from Scripture. Pray for their salvation if that's applicable. Pray for their, their ailment, of course. Pray for the family and the health care workers who are helping them to deal with it. Pray that they'll trust God in the midst of it. Pray that they'll die well, if that is what is in the offing. Pray for the prisoners, that God would be kind to them in spite of their sins and so on. Always read scripture. Always pray. And thirdly, be mindful of the time. Be mindful of the time. Depending on the person's condition and upon the closeness of your relationship, both with the person you're visiting and sometimes with their family who may be in the room with them, you have to gauge just how long is appropriate for you to remain. Sometimes you'll need to stay for quite some time, even if you don't have much more to say than what you've already shared. Sometimes 10 to 15 minutes is plenty and you don't need to outstay your welcome. So you're there to offer comfort. And that means you don't rush out so quickly that you don't give yourself enough time to do so, and you don't stay too long that your presence becomes uncomfortable. So this is one area in which I just wanted to offer some practical wisdom tonight, visitation of the sick and the imprisoned. Now, secondly, let's think about family worship. Family worship, a different departure, a different set of issues. And let me begin, when we think about family worship, let me begin by saying that family worship itself falls into the category of a practical suggestion and not a biblical mandate. That is to say that while there is a biblical mandate for husbands to spiritually lead their wives and for parents to train their children in the words and ways of God, it's not mandated that it must mandated that it must happen in the form of regular family sit-downs for Bible reading and explanation and prayer and song. There is no command thou shalt have family worship to be found in the pages of scripture. And yet I would say that For most of us, if we're going to really do what the Bible does command in regard to our families, family worship is one of the most tried and true ways of doing so. Having a regular time of family devotions is not my suggestion, of course, 
but it is a practice that has helped innumerable families over the course of history. So it is a, a suggestion from the history of health in the church to do what God has called us to do in training up our children and in being spiritual leaders for our wives one way by means of family worship. And what does God call us to do in these areas of leading our wives and training up our children? What are the biblical principles? Well, the first principle is that the husband should be a spiritual leader for his wife. The facts that the wife is called to submit to her husband, Ephesians 5.22, and that the husband is the head of the wife in verse 23, and that one of the ways that Christ loved his bride, verse 26, was to wash her with the word. These facts lead us to the principle that the husband is to be a spiritual leader for his wife. And then there's also the principle of parents spiritually leading their children, parents training their children in the word and ways of God. Just let me read to you perhaps the most famous or one of the two most famous passages in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And then Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So how are we supposed to do these things? How... Are we men, we husbands, supposed to lead our wives spiritually? And how are we parents to lead our children spiritually as we're commanded to do? One practical suggestion, one tried and true suggestion to be gleaned from the history of the church is the practice of family worship. The practice of gathering the family, usually daily, for a time of reading the Bible and talking about what it says and then praying together and singing together. There are other ways, of course, that these biblical mandates must be or can be kept. And if we do have family worship, surely that's not all that we should be doing to lead our wives and children spiritually. But family worship is one way. It's a tried and true way of fulfilling the biblical mandate for husbands to lead their wives and for parents to train their children in the things of God. So let me now give you my practical suggestions on this larger church historical practical suggestion of family worship. And as I did with visitation, let me give you three items here. Three suggestions regarding family worship tonight. First, set a time. Set a time. Pick a time in the day that works with your family schedule. Could be morning, could be night, could be midday. But pick a time that works with your family schedule when you will typically gather together each day for family devotions. When I say pick a time, I don't necessarily mean it has to be 7.15 a.m. or 8.20 p.m. I'm not suggesting that sort of exactness. What I have in mind is that you pick a time like every day after breakfast or every evening after we clean up from supper or each night before the kids go to bed, we will gather for family worship. So you pick a time slot that is related to something that is also a regular part of your daily routine, and you make it a habit 
unless there's a pressing need, to almost always have family worship at that stage of the day. So you see what I'm saying? There's already rhythms in your family life. There's already things that you're doing regularly. So before one of those things or after one of those things, you say we're also going every day to have family worship at this stage of the day. You know that you eat dinner at a certain part of the day. It's not always the exact same time, but maybe it's when dad gets home. Maybe it's after we finish homework, whatever it is. Do that with family worship. Every day at this particular part of the day, we gather together to read the Bible, to talk about the Bible, to sing together, to pray together. Because if you never know from day to day whether family worship will be in the morning or after dinner or maybe before bed or when it's going to be, if you make that decision on a day-to-day basis and don't have a plan, guess how often it's just not going to happen? Very often. But you see, if family worship is always after dinner or it's always after breakfast or it's always before bed or it's always at whatever stage of the day, you'll get into a routine. And your kids, if mom and dad try to skip one day, or if mom and dad forget one day, your kids will remember the routine. And they will kindly remind you. What about family worship? In fact, I want to urge you to be so regular with your family worship habits that your kids will notice the routine, and they will notice if you miss a day, and they'll ask you about it if it appears that you're going to bypass family worship on a given day. Set a time and stick with it. It might change at different seasons of your life, but it probably won't be helpful if it fluctuates from day to day or even week to week, lest you really prove to have no routine, because no routine will often mean no worship. So that's the first thing, set a time for family worship. The second thing is this, require and arrange for the presence of the whole family. Require and arrange for the presence of the whole family. So don't allow the disinterested to skip out. And don't allow busyness to cause people to be routinely missing. Obviously, there will sometimes be exceptions when someone's out of town or someone has a special event going on. But if you make a habit of settling for different members of the family missing because of this reason or that reason, then discontinuity and missed opportunities will lessen the effectiveness of what you're trying to do. So require and arrange for everyone to be present as much as possible. Now, when the kids are small and they're not coming and going on their own, it may be relatively easy to get everyone together. But when they get older and maybe they have a job or they're gone from home for other reasons a little more often, it may require a little more work. But in most healthy homes, surely there will be some time in the daily routine when everyone is home together. It may be early in the morning before everyone is really off for the day. Maybe it will be the last thing before bed at night. But find that time when everyone is most likely to be home and have family worship then, rather than have someone often missing, or rather than trying to do it at a different time slot every day. It's important, it seems to me, that you have not just mom and kids worship, not just mom and dad worship, not just parents and smaller children worship, but family worship. And if your family is so scattered or so busy that there just isn't a time in the daily routine when everyone can be together for a little while, then you're probably going to have more problems than just finding time for family worship. 
But if you have time for family worship, you'll probably have time for other important things that families ought to be doing together regularly as well. So set a time and then require and arrange for the presence of the whole family. And then thirdly, have a plan. Have a plan for your family worship. Have a plan, first of all, as to what elements will make up your time of worship. And may I suggest, as I've already done, very simply, that you read a portion of Scripture, that you talk about that portion, either with the head of the house instructing or combining instruction with discussion among the group. So you read a portion of Scripture, you talk about that portion of Scripture, then you pray together, maybe about what you read and perhaps about other things as well, inside and outside of the family. And then you sing together. Have a plan of what your family worship will include. And again, I suggest very simply Bible reading, Bible instruction, and maybe discussion, prayer, and song. Very simple. Probably will last 15 minutes in most cases. Maybe longer if your children are older. And then not only have a plan for what the overall structure is going to be, but have a plan in each of those areas. So what part of the Bible are we going to read and discuss? I would suggest that you not typically decide that when you sit down, but that you have a plan. And typically I would suggest you just read through books of the Bible. So you can go for days or weeks on end in the same direction without always having to try to figure out what we're going to do today. If you have small children, the narrative portions like the Gospels and Acts and Old Testament history are good. You can venture into other books as well if you take small enough chunks and do a good job of explaining. Don't read too much. And as with visitation, gauge moms and dads the capacity of your hearers. But as they are able to hear it, give your family a sufficient portion of the pure milk of the word to enable them to grow. 1 Peter 2.2. And as I say, have a plan for what you're going to read and discuss for a particular season. And then have a plan for how you're going to pray. Will we simply pray based on the day's reading? Will we have some sort of a prayer list that we go through? Will we go around the circle and take prayer requests? Is it going to be some combination of the above? And then have a plan for what you'll sing. Think about what you're going to sing. I suggest, with children at least, singing the same song for family worship for a whole week. Maybe it's something that goes with what you're reading. Maybe it's a new song that you're going to learn as a family. What we do, typically in our family, is we sing a song that's going to be sung here at church on the upcoming Sunday morning. Now, I've always known what we were going to sing on Sunday morning because I've selected the songs. And now that Scott is selecting the songs and doing a great job of it, I would say... Now that Scott is selecting the songs, he's doing so usually a month in advance. And so there's typically a copy of the schedule, both on the piano and back there at the audiovisual booth that you could look at and select your song for the coming week, or Scott or, or I could email it to you as well. As your kids get older, or if everybody in that house has grown, you might just work through the hymnal and sing a different song each day instead of singing the same song for a week. But whatever it is, it's good to have a plan and not fly by the seat of your pants in these things. So, considering family worship, set a time. Require and arrange for the presence of the whole family and have a plan. So two things so far, visitation, family worship, and then the third area of the Christian life to consider tonight is the Lord's Day, or the Sabbath. 
Now let's go right to the biblical principles here, and I'll invite you to read with me several passages of Scripture, and then having read them, I'll summarize the principles before making some practical suggestions for the fruitful and faithful use of the Lord's Day. But we'll begin with the Scriptures, and the first is in Genesis chapter 1. We'll begin at verse 31 and read down through chapter 2, verse 3. These various scriptures regarding the Sabbath. Genesis 1, 31 through 2, 3. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. And then we turn over to the book of Exodus and chapter 16, and we'll read verses 13 through 26. Exodus 16. 13 through 26. So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. So the sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much and some little. When they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. Moses said to them, Let no man leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses, and some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul, and Moses was angry with them. They gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat. But when the sun grew hot, it would melt. Now on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, then he said to them, This is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning, as Moses had ordered, and it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Then Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day. To keep it holy, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And then over... In Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14, If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable and honor it, 
desisting from your own ways and from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word, then you will take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now let me summarize all of that by saying the following. First, the Sabbath is a creation ordinance. The Sabbath, in other words, is not merely part of the Mosaic law. It was given on the seventh day of earth's existence. God sanctified one day in seven away back on the first week of the planet's existence when Adam was only one day old. The Sabbath, in other words, was built into mankind's existence from the very beginning. And we see that it was not just part and parcel of the Mosaic law in that passage in Exodus 16, where the children of Israel were gathering twice as much bread on the sixth day because there would be no bread and there would be no gathering on the Sabbath. And that's important because all of that was happening, you understand, before God gave the Ten Commandments in chapter 20 of Exodus. Four chapters before the Ten Commandments were given, the Sabbath was already in effect because it had in fact been in effect from the very beginning. All of which is to say we cannot simply stop here tonight and say, well, the Sabbath is part of the Mosaic law, and in fact it's part of the Mosaic law that the New Testament people no longer need keep. There are parts of the Mosaic law that we no longer need to keep because they've been fulfilled in Christ, but the Sabbath is not merely part of the Mosaic law. And as Alistair Begas pointed out, even when it is reiterated within the Mosaic law in Exodus 20, it falls squarely between two other commandments that no one is arguing do not apply. The commandments regarding our parents and regarding the name of the Lord and its use. So the Sabbath command still applies, and it applies as follows. On the Lord's day... In the New Testament, we already find believers meeting on the first day of the week, having their Lord's Day on the first day of the week, 1 Corinthians 16, 2, and Acts 20, verse 7. On the Lord's Day, we're not to engage in labor. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it, you shall not do any work. You would think that would be exciting, right? A whole day where we don't have to work. But sometimes we forget how good it is. You shall not do any work. Now, Jesus makes clear in the New Testament that works of piety, necessity, and mercy are not included in those things that we shouldn't be doing. He makes clear that we may work for God on the Lord's day, as I do, that we may get a sheep out of a ditch, or for us, let's say, repair a flooded toilet on the Lord's day, we, because that's a work of necessity we may heal the sick without violating the fourth commandment but as for all these other labors gainful employment laundry house cleaning shopping cutting the grass homework and so on we don't have to do those on Sundays and in fact we're commanded not to do them on the Lord's day we have six other days on which to do them and then this principle not only should we not work but we shouldn't require others to work for us either in it You shall not do any work, Exodus 20, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. So the idea is not only do you not work, but you don't make other people work for you on the Lord's day either. Now in our modern era, 
our servants usually don't live in the house with us and they're not on our payroll, but they might work for Olive Garden or they might take tickets at the stadium or they might work at Target or whatever. And God is saying, don't make them work for you on my day. They're to have that day as a day of rest, just like you're to have it as a day of rest. And not only is this a day on which we must not work and on which we must not make others work, but also it's a day on which we shouldn't engage in distracting play either. Isaiah speaks of desisting from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own words, which means we are to desist from frittering away the Lord's day on hobbies and recreation and games and so on that will distract us from God. Which brings me to the last thing to say regarding the Sabbath principle, the biblical principle, and that is that it's not only a day to refrain from certain things, but it's also a day for pursuing certain things, and particularly for pursuing delight in God. Isaiah 58, 13, and 14. Call the Sabbath a delight, then you will take delight in the Lord. The Sabbath day, the Lord's day, Sunday is a day for seeking delight in God. That's why we don't fritter away the day delighting in other things that we might delight in the rest of the week. And we don't spend the day working on things that would keep us from resting and looking to our God. And if we seek this delight, says the Lord, we will find it. If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath the delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable and honor it, desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own words, then you will take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There is blessing in keeping this day. There's blessing on the day itself, and there's blessing in the rest of life if we will keep this one day set aside from our labors, from our recreations, and to the delight that we should have in God. So the Sabbath command still applies with its call to refrain from labor, from making others labor, and from distracting recreation. And it still applies with its call to seek and delight, seek and find delight in God. But how do we do so, practically? That's my hope tonight, is to make practical suggestions. And let me, with this area of the Sabbath, once again divide my practical suggestions into three parts before a short conclusion and then we're through. How to keep the Sabbath day holy. How to delight in God on his day. First, let me urge you to plan for Sunday. Plan for Sunday. If you're going to keep the Sabbath holy, if you're going to avoid what should be avoided and pursue what should be pursued, you're going to need to plan ahead. You're going to need to begin, first of all, to reckon with and plan for the fact that you only have six days on which to do all your work. You only have six days to put your house in order, to put in your hours at the office, to run all of your errands, to clean all of your clothes, to do all of your schoolwork, and so on. You have six days, not seven, to do that. Because one day is for God and for rest. And you have to plan like that. And if you say, well, it can't be done, then I would urge you that you haven't read the Bible carefully enough. Because God commanded that it be done. And God's people throughout the ages have done it. And he also provided in Exodus 16 for the fact that it was so. They were only to gather for six days and God provided for that so that they were provided for on the seventh day. And he'll provide for you too. 
if you'll trust him and live according to his word. So you have to plan your working week into six days. And then you also have to plan for Sunday itself. And I suggest that if you don't want to spend undue time, for instance, laboring in the kitchen, crock pots filled up on Saturday nights or sandwiches made up in advance can be a wonderful Saturday night routine to enable you to rest on Sunday or to visit with your guests when they come to your home. Leftovers on Sunday evening are also a good plan, and so are disposable cups and plates and flatware on Sunday so that your dishes don't pile too high and tempt you to spend the afternoon bent over the kitchen sink instead of enjoying the Lord. And let me encourage you to plan your travel around the Lord's Day as well. Don't travel unnecessarily on the Lord's Day, spending the day cramped in a car, not very restful, and having other people work to feed you along the way. And when you're out of town on the Lord's Day, remember it's still the Lord's Day. On a business trip at the beach in the mountains, it's still the Lord's Day. And you're still commanded to take that day off and to give others that day off and to refrain from that which will distract you from the Lord and to pursue delight in Him. So plan your out-of-town trips accordingly. Find a church to attend Organize the trip so that Sunday can be Sunday in every way that it should be, even when you're out of town. So that's the first thing. Plan for Sunday. And then the second thing, by way of practical suggestions, is just that I want to list for you some positive uses for the Lord's Day. Yes, there are things to avoid, both because our minds and bodies need a rest from those things, and so that the minds and bodies of others can have a rest from those things. But one of the reasons why we avoid certain things on the Lord's Day is so that we can pursue other things. We set aside some good things on one day of the week so that we can especially pursue the best things. So what are some of the things that we should pursue? What are some of the positive uses of the Lord's Day? Well, one, just on a physical level, could be quite simply a nap. The day is set aside for bodily and mental rest, as well as spiritual delight, and a little extra sleep for many people will fit that bill nicely. Take a nap on Sunday, and you don't have to feel guilty about it. But what about the pursuit of delight in God? How do we foster delight in God on the Lord's Day? A few suggestions on that line. First, I hope most obviously, is to be in church without fail. Terry Johnson, in his book, Family Worship, which is excellent, and I would recommend to you, says, though the book is about family worship, he says that the single most important thing we can do to promote the spiritual health of ourselves and of our families is to be in the house of the Lord, to be in church 52 Sundays a year, barring illness, hearing and being shaped by the word of God. And I would urge that upon you. But what about the rest of the day? Let me suggest to you, You give a chunk of it to reading. You can catch up on your Bible reading on Sunday. Maybe you can read a whole book of the Bible in one sitting, which you wouldn't have time to do perhaps on other days. You can read good Christian books. I'd especially urge heartwarming devotional material, heartwarming theology and biography. Sunday is also a good day for listening listening to or watching other faithful preachers besides your own. And the Internet is just vastly uh, full with those kinds of opportunities, although beware um, to listen to men who are godly and faithful. 
It's also a good day for watching things like Christian documentaries. There's excellent new documentaries in the last few years that have come out on Luther and Knox and Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's a good day to watch those wonderful dispatches from the front, missions videos that we have in our church library. Sunday's also a good day for fellowship, for having fellow believers over to your home or going to their home and enjoying lunch and edifying conversation. It's a good day for making the visits that we spoke about in the first part of this message. It's a good day for doing what some of us recently heard Derek Thomas say was done in his wife's growing up home on Sunday afternoons, gathering around the piano to sing to the Lord. It's a good day to sing together as a family. It's a good day for a leisurely walk with your family to enjoy one another, to talk about real things, to enjoy the Lord's creation. And I heard Douglas, Dr. Douglas Kelly say recently that when his children were small and their mother was getting lunch together, he would go over the catechism with them and give them candy for ever so many questions they answered correctly. Uh, so you can do that as well. Don't try to do all these things. In a single Lord's day, you'll wear yourself out and not get the refreshment that God intends. But the idea is that these are the sorts of things that you can do unhurried and unharassed by a to-do list. These are the sorts of things you can do in order to help yourself and your family call the Sabbath a delight and delight in God on it. So I've urged you to plan for Sunday. I've given you some positive uses for the Lord's day. And then finally... Practically concerning the Sabbath, let me give you some thoughts regarding children. Regarding children. The Sabbath is for your children, too. It's for all mankind, Genesis chapter 2. And that means whether your children are believers yet or not, the Sabbath is for them. And believe, parents, one of the greatest services you can provide for your children in their formative years is to organize your family such that remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy is completely and utterly normal to them. Because I think one of the reasons that some of us find it very difficult to set aside the things that we must set aside on this day and to do all the things that are good for us to do on this day is because it requires for most of us such a big change from what has become customary for us. The Sabbath has largely been discarded in our culture and some of us grew up without it or at least with only the first part of it set aside for God. And when something is lost, it is often very difficult to regain. When a habit has been lost, it's often very difficult to be reformed. But what if your children grow up in a family in which Sabbath observance is normal, in which delighting in God on his day is normal? What if they grow up in a family in which they don't have to relearn the Sunday routine someday in order to keep God's day holy? What if they grow up in a family where they won't miss the restaurant or the NFL or the last-minute homework scramble because it was never a part of their life to begin with because they were given by their parents the gift of one day set aside for God and away from all these scrambling things? And give them the gift, too, not only of the Sabbath being normal, but give them the gift of calling the Sabbath a delight. Don't make the mistake of focusing so much on the don'ts that you don't remember about the do's. And help them to see that though there are don'ts on the Sabbath, 
One of the reasons there are don'ts is for the purpose of the do's. One of the reasons why we refrain from certain things is so that we can pursue other things, help them to see that, and provide them opportunities for pursuing those things. In other words, don't just enjoy the day yourself and leave your kids to themselves either to figure out what to do or just to assume that all they're allowed to do is stare at the ceiling all afternoon as they lay in their beds. Provide them with some of those good books about which I spoke. Engage them in good discussion. Teach them the catechism in in an enjoyable way and maybe give them candy for doing it. Let them join in with the enjoyment of your company. Take them to the nursing home. One thing we've done in our family is to set aside a particular book in our living room of books for our children that would make for good Sunday reading. And they know that it's there and they know why that it's there. It's a bookshelf filled with spiritually edifying books that they could read any day of the week if they want, but that they know are especially there for them to comb through on the Lord's Day. It's a bookshelf, not a cabinet, but we call it the Sabinet, combining Sabbath and cabinet because I guess that sounds better than a bookshelf or something. But, but we have this bookshelf, we have this sabinet, this Sabbath cabinet, providing good resources that will edify their souls and help them to delight in God on his day. Books about missionaries, books about reformers, books that tell stories that just illustrate the truth of the faith and so on. Another place where you can find those kind of resources, if you don't have a bookshelf, worth of them already, resources in video and book form is in the church library. We have those dispatches from the front videos that our kids, I think, have enjoyed. We have the torchlighters videos that many of the children in the church have seen, and they are helpful, and there's lots of good children's books as well. But however you do it, help your children call the Sabbath a delight, and help them as much as anything else by showing them that it's a delight to you. So then... A few practical thoughts. I hope they've been helpful tonight on visitation of the sick and the imprisoned, on family worship, and on the Sabbath. And let me say in all these things as we close, the goal in all of these things is to point ourselves and others to God in Christ. The goal of visiting is to point others to God in Christ. The goal of family worship is to point ourselves and our families to God in Christ. The goal of the Sabbath is, yes, to rest our bodies and to rest our minds, but also to point ourselves on this day especially to God in Christ. Yes, we look at him every other day, but this is a special day to look to and delight in God in Christ. The goal in all these things is to point ourselves and others to the friend of sinners to the Savior of souls, to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, to our prophet, priest, and king, to point ourselves, to point others to the one who is outstanding among 10,000, to the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He is worthy, is he not, of being taken through his word to the sick, to the dying, to the perplexed, to the imprisoned. He is worthy of his word and his praise being intentionally and routinely woven into the rhythms of our family lives. And he is worthy, yes, of worship and service and love every day of the week, but he is also worthy of us setting aside a special day in order to cultivate these things in our souls. So let us live in 
these and in every other way so that he himself will come to have first place in everything.